You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. And this is our new intro. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I just cobbled it together. Our former intro was fine, but it was like royalty-free music. And that's cool, but it's not really unique. And uh, we thought we'd just, you know, experiment a little bit and try to build something that is literally just our intro. And if you are sitting out there and you think like, what, that's the new intro? I could have done a much better job than that then please, you know, by all means, go ahead and send it to podcast at studyingpixels.com. Because I think <laughs> we're pretty flexible when it comes to that, right? And maybe we can find a, another amazing intro somewhere in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you, now, you now have two examples of the kind of vibe that we're going for. So if there's one that you think fits better, let us know. Yes. But I will say this. I will say this, Stefan, you mentioned that you cobbled it together. You're being modest. I think you spent a good amount of time putting that together, and I think it sounds great. Yeah, the problem is that I am a, I'm genuinely a musician, and I also play in a band. I've had a band rehearsal this week, again, finally, and it was like really enjoyable. But the thing is, I play the guitar, I play the piano, and I sing, and I'm, I love writing songs. But actually writing an intro is profoundly different from writing a normal musical piece, you know, a normal song. It flows completely differently. It needs to be much more concise. And I'm not that good at that, I must say. <laughs> well, regardless, I think it turned out lovely. Uh, thank you so very much. I hope you people out there like it as well. We also want to shout out our YouTube channel, which I think we have either not mentioned or only mentioned briefly. But yes, you can also get our podcast on YouTube now. We have a channel there just called Studying Pixels. There's nothing fancy going on. Like the videos are just literally the image that we use for the episode and yet there's not really any visual element to it. I think that would be really cool in the future, but now we're just, you know, in the process of developing things, growing things. We want to see what works and what you like out there. So we always appreciate some feedback on that front. But we've seen some engagement on YouTube and surprisingly, there are many people out there apparently who like to listen to podcasts on YouTube. I think I might be one of them. I think I was thinking about it, and uh, I I may be equal parts um, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but I, I I spend so much time on YouTube anyway. I often find myself listening to podcasts there. So, if you're like me, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> we also need to catch up with something just briefly. Something that's been on my mind is. Uh, still, you know, Fatal Frame, Maiden of Black Water. Yes. Because we, we spoke about that game last week. It's a Wii U port. Sorry, not a port. It's it's officially called a remaster, but it's almost a little bit like a port. Yeah, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been, we've both been playing it on PS5, and we gave our initial review re uh, impressions last week already, and they were quite mixed. I think it's probably an apt summary to say that we said... From a technical standpoint, it's quite disappointing and very low effort, clearly, in comparison to what the Wii U original already was. At the same time, it still is profoundly creepy. Like, Fatal Frame is still very creepy. And I just wanted to round off our review conversation on that because I spent a lot more time with it. And I'm now almost done. I'm like in the last, in the very last mission. So I have a very representative overview 
of this game now. And I can say that most of the arguments that we made last week already, I can confirm that this is indeed how it progresses. It has still some of the creepiest cutscenes I've ever seen in any video game. These cutscenes are so profoundly scary. I shared some of them on on Twitter and it's truly just disturbing imagery. It gets me quite a bit. And there are, mm. I think there are two missions in this entire game that really got under my skin. Uh, that's kind of high praise, I would say, for a game to really do that. It is, yeah. It's a high achievement for a horror game to get under my skin to the degree that after playing it, I have to, you know, just watch some cute cat videos before I can go to bed <laughs> because it's just too scary. <laughs> and these are these are very confined missions, missions in which you are like in the antique shop, which is kind of like the hub of all the characters. They always are in this antique shop. And from there, they travel to Mount Hikami, which is like the suicide mountain. Um, and there are two sequences that only take place in this shop and ghosts are coming and trying to invade the shop. And you have to like, you know, watch through surveillance cameras to check every room. And then you have to go wherever you see some kind of weird activity. You have to go there and dispel the ghosts. It's really creepy. The first one that really got to me was called The Witching Hour. And that name, just The Witching Hour, it still, yeah. it still sticks to my mind. Yeah, that's a, I feel like that's an international creepy thing, the witching hour, some time at night when horrible things happen. <laughs> yes, oh my god. So it, it has some powerful, creepy stuff in there. At the same time, there's also what I wanted to praise is the camera system, because yes, it's a central feature in Fatal Frame, that's why it's called that, that you have the camera obscura and you have to photograph ghosts in order to dispel them. And uh, in, in this one, at least, I, I didn't see it coming to the degree to which it develops. Like you find all kinds of lenses that modify effects. For example, you can like briefly freeze a ghost for a certain amount of time. Or you can take use some like special energy that you collect through fighting with this camera to obtain more points that you can then reinvest in upgrading the different features of the camera. So there is enough variety there in my mind to carry through the entire duration of the game. So that's also a really good thing. Mm. Now here come some negative impressions that I also want to add. First of all, we criticized last week that the game was janky and part of it being janky is that the controls are a bit oversensitive so that whenever you walk you kind of like feel like your character is like jiggling around a little bit whenever you move yeah. the left stick they corrected that with a patch this week which is nice oh, great however yeah. now it's too sluggish <laughs> ah they overcorrected <laughs> they overcorrected they were like okay we have to get those jiggly animations out of there and now you have to like always like walk an arch when you're running, like you can't run a straight corner, but you need to run like a very slow turn. <laughs> it's still quite janky and annoying. Also, something that I want to point out is that there's a wetness system. We didn't talk about that last week, but you can. It's maiden. It's called Maiden of Black Water. It's all about water, and you know you have a kind of an indicator whenever it rains or when you're in the water or even like attacked by specific ghosts then you have a, a meter that indicates how wet you are. And if this wetness meter is full, then you will experience more supernatural activity. So it's actually a bad thing. Mm. And this is, I think, generally a cool system because it very much correlates with the theme of the game. However, 
here they also did something that I personally do not particularly approve of, and that is they really went all out. The more you progress in this game, the more it becomes clear when it comes to spicy outfits for the girls. Because when you get wet, then you always wear like some like a, a white top or something, and they are already quite sexualized characters. And then, obviously, their clothes get transparent to the degree that you can literally run through this game in just like a bikini with like a, a white T-shirt that just sticks to your skin and shows basically everything. You know, it's always... It's always an interesting uh, gaming session where you feel like if anyone walks into the room, you have to explain yourself. Yes, and that is one <laughs> of them. That is one of them. And it's it's just so, I find it a bit annoying just because I think, okay, you know, purchasing outfits and so on, that's all fine and good. It Also that it's like, that there are some, you know, naughty outfits. That's not entirely untypical Japanese, you know? That, sure. <laughs> that you can equip your characters with just something very skimpy. But making it so central that almost all the outfits are like, you know, a wet t-shirt contest. <laughs> it just, to me, it undermines the creepiness of the game if I see my character walking around like, oh, you know? <laughs> it's a little yeah. bit like, well, come on. Especially if that weren't as prevalent, then it sounds like it would be really resonant with the theme of the game, which is kind of like drowning and being being uh, submerged in this kind of terror. So <laughs> to have all of a sudden, like all of these different outfits with, as you say, like a wet t-shirt contest coming in, it seems kind of at odds with the creepy factor. <laughs> it's a bit at odds, yeah. I don't, I don't mind if there's like an extra skimpy outfit you can unlock after finishing the game and then it's like a little bit of, you know, eye candy or fan service or whatever you want to call it. Sure. I personally am not a big fan of it, but I know some people are and that's fine. I don't want to judge. But uh, <laughs> unfortunately, it also has one other big downside. You can tell from the fact that we spoke about this last week already and I was pretty far in and we speak about it this week again that this game really does not know when to stop. Mm. <laughs> it's, it completely overstays its welcome. I've been playing like one or two of these so-called drops, which take, I would say, between um, 40 minutes to one and a half, like almost every evening. And uh, this game really doubles down on repetition and backtracking, visiting the same areas over and over again. And then you have to walk from one far end, of, uh, far end of the area to another far end. It just takes too long. The Half the length of the game would have been perfectly sufficient to tell that kind of story. Because at a certain point, you know, when you play a horror game, at first it's really creepy. And you go like slowly through these hallways and you're scared whenever a ghost appears out of nowhere. But then once you get tired of it and you've spent so many hours running around there, you just you start to run. And then you're just like, oh, okay, another ghost. It just becomes cumbersome and I have to fight, fight them off again, you know? Yeah. Well, once you get used to the scare, it's not scary anymore. It's, it's like in, in Jaws, there's a reason we don't see the shark for a, the vast majority of that film. You know, you'd, you if you see it enough, you get used to it and then you're not scared anymore. And it becomes a slog a little bit. Exactly. It truly becomes a slog and I'll be very happy when it's finally over. I'm, I've reached, normally <laughs> I do everything in video games. I'm like collecting everything. But now at the end, like three quarters through Fatal Frame, I feel like I just want to get it over with. I just want to run to the next point and have the next brief, extremely scary cutscene move on. <laughs> so I would say... To conclude my thoughts on, on that game, put it aside after that. If you've played this game on the Wii U already or on any other platform, I don't know. I think it was a Wii U exclusive so far. I think so. Yeah. If you've played it on the Wii U, then it's not worth 
revisiting on, you know, even the PlayStation 5 or any other kind of contemporary console, I think it probably makes more sense to wait for a genuine follow-up. I'm not sure whether they're planning to do this, but I hope that this very low-effort remaster indicates that maybe they're working on something and they wanted to release it to literally just test the waters, you know? Uh, <laughs> such Aha. a terrible joke. <laughs> but still, there is great potential in the Fatal Frame series, and I don't want to see it fail. I hope that they really put more effort into a genuine sequel. Well, and maybe maybe that's the upside of this uh, kind of lackluster port, is that maybe it'll get some more attention on Fatal Frame and drum up some excitement for it. Yeah, I hope so. Because like like we said in our episode last week, I have the utmost faith in Koei Tecmo. They've been doing a lot of great work lately, and I think they could put out a really great modern Fatal Frame game. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And the last uh, point that I want to mention before we move on to the main story is that after our discussion of Fatal Frame, like we mentioned on the show that this game actually has three names. Its original title, Zero, in uh, Japanese, then in the US, it's called Fatal Frame, and in Europe, it's called Project Zero. And I took that <laughs> to social media, and there was a bit of conversation revolving around the question of what other uh, silly translations and localizations of names, video game names, exist. And I stumbled upon a few interesting ones that I just want to shout out. So uh, Eugen Fister, um, a colleague of mine, mentioned Resident Evil. Oh, yes. Resident Evil, which is, of course, called in Japanese, Dan, you probably know it. Biohazard. Yes, exactly. Biohazard. Yep. Which leads to the peculiar situation. Like, the original title of this game is Biohazard, because it's, it is a Japanese game, indeed. Um, and it leads to the peculiar situation that Resident Evil 7 Biohazard. Biohazard. <laughs> <laughs> that is, in, in Japan, that is called Biohazard 7 Resident Evil. <laughs> well, I, I get, uh, you know funny flashbacks to we got yakuza like a dragon and to you know retranslate that into japanese would be yuga gotoku yuga gotoku <laughs> right the yakuza series in general is called yuga gotoku in in japanese mm. and that means literally like a dragon so they changed it yeah i don't think it's called it's probably not called yuga gotoku like a dragon <laughs> <is> it? <laughs> no it's called uh yuga gotoku 7 Hikari to Yami no Yukue, literally like a dragon seven, whereabouts of light and darkness. Oh, that's really, that's a very different title. Yes. And uh, I think that it's just funny to me to think that it took us seven games to just get the, the title of, this, of the series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was speculating about that. I think with Yakuza, my, my understanding would be, you know, we, we did an episode of uh, Studying Pixels Plus episode where we talked about how Yakuza works. Studying Pixels Plus, by the way, dear listeners, you can get by going to studyingpixels.com slash plus. It's essentially a Patreon program. And the reason why I think that they changed the name, because there must be like a reason why people say, okay, we can't call it, we can obviously not call it Yuga Gotoku, nobody would understand that, but we can call right. it maybe like a dragon. But no, we'd not, we're not going to do that because, that's my assumption, because the idea of a dragon is a different one in Japan than it was in the ve in the West at the time. And so they might have thought, well, we better use something that's internationally familiar. And that would be something like Yakuza. People know what, who, who the Yakuza are. I think so. I think, I think there's a lot of, uh, when it comes to localizing names, there's a lot of thought of what would be recognizable to a Western audience. And also I think there's a degree of um, what's popular in the West. Because I think when Yakuza came over, GTA 
hugely popular, right? So you kind of associate, okay, GTA, maybe gangs, maybe mafia, Yakuza. Yeah. All right, that should get some eyes on this series. You want to sound, make it sound a bit more appealing. And I actually stumbled upon another one that quite confused me. I don't know whether I told this anecdote before on the show, but a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to a, a, a Japanese friend and she told me about this amazing video game um, that she thinks it could be really cool for, you know, looking into madness in video games, which is mm. the subject of my PhD. And she told me the story of this video game. We were speaking in Japanese. And uh, I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. It really made, wow, come on, I haven't heard of that, but it sounds kind of familiar. And she told me about this fantastic game called Psycho Break. So Psycho Break. And I was like, uh-huh. man, I know this <laughs> video game. And after our conversation, I looked it up. It's the evil within. Why didn't we call it Psycho Break? <laughs> it's such a better name. Yes, Psycho yeah. Break. Psycho Break is a perfectly original name that you can use for a video game. But for some reason, they just decided when we bring it to the West, we change the title, call it The Evil Within. Which, uh, you know, having played the, I've played the first one. I mean, The Evil Within is not a, a bad name for what happens in that game. Um, I also think that... Um, that is a case where, speaking of Biohazard, they were trying to capitalize on Resident Evil because um, the creator of Resident Evil was involved with ah. Psycho Break. So, I mean, when and when you think about it too, Resident Evil, the evil within, I mean, it's really, <laughs> it's the same title when you think about it. So, I but Psycho Break, such a punchy, exciting name for that game. Yeah, yeah. Apparently it is uh, considered to make sense in, in Japan, but not in the west for some reason well all right and i've got one i've got one particularly <laughs> curious last one last localization change that i wanted to shout out this has been submitted by mateos uh do you know a game called canis canem edit canis canem edit oh my latin is is very rusty <laughs> and i would say no <laughs> because the thing is do you know a game, you mentioned Rockstar Games before, do you know a game called Bully? Is that what Bully was? Where's, yes. Where is that? <laughs> where, okay, maybe like as the motto of the school? Is that what that was? Potentially. I think it was printed on the box art as looking like the motto of the school, but actually the game was, I think, titled Canis Canem Edit in Germany, as far as I'm aware. It could have been. Interesting. I'm not sure whether it was in the entirety of the EU, but it definitely was called that in Germany and I looked I did a little bit of research and the only reason that I found was that there was the fear that the title bully in itself would already sound like promoting bullying. Oh, I see. And so okay. in that case they just said, okay, let's just make it Latin. I think uh, canis canem edit as far as I understand it with my very limited Latin it's somewhat similar to like, you know, a wolf, wolf eats a wolf. Oh, like dog eat dog? Yeah, like or dog eat dog. Yeah, because from canis like from the canines, you know. I guess I guess I could see from from what you've told me of the German video game review board or the you know the the group that looks at art. I would imagine they would think, well, let's not get a manual on how to bully out to children. We should change the title. <laughs> Still a profound misunderstanding because that game in that game you're not the one who's actually doing the bullying, but you're fighting against bullies. Absolutely. Well, um, now this has been a long warm-up for this show. We were like 20 minutes in. (laughs) (laughs) But a worthwhile one because 
our our main story today is a very, uh, I think, a very fun game that we're about to play. Yes, it is. We thought about further ways in which we could mess up video game titles. You know the feeling when you remember a video game, but you don't remember what its title is, and so you try to describe it, or you think you mess up the actual title, and you just give it a different yeah. one? That kind of feeling? Yeah, you know, it's um it's the one where uh uh you know, a big beefy space marine takes out a religious cult of aliens. Uh there's a big ring in it. Um Halo, Halo, that's what I'm thinking of. Exactly. <laughs> or when you say, you know, there's a a tripping plumber stepping on turtles. Uh and <laughs> that of course is Super Mario. And yeah, so we of course. we thought we'd come together and we just brainstorm a couple of Funny, silly titles, title blunder. That's why this t the title of this episode. And we also uh, took to the community and we collected some funny title blunder blunders that we can bring in. Um, do you want to get started with one of your uh, blunders? Yes, I. I'm. We don't know the, the blunders of each other. No, this is a. Uh, let's see if <laughs> let's see if the other one can guess it. So. Um, Although I did, I do think that our, um, I may have misremembered this, but I do think that our rules prior to this episode was games we thought the other person would know yeah. based on our understanding of each other. So hopefully this won't be too esoteric. Okay, so my first one is, a group of high schoolers weaponize Carl Jung by using ghosts to punch criminals. Ah, uh, I know the answer to that one. <laughs> it could have been... I thought you might. It could have been several at the beginning, when the, the first half of a sentence, it could have been several, but this is, of course, Persona. This is the Persona series. Yes, specifically uh, Persona 5 with punching criminals. Yes. <laughs> ah, right, because before you try to save each other, they try to save each other and unlock their friendships, so to speak. And in this case, they're going after criminals specifically. And I had I had thought that I could have uh, I could have made it about four if I changed the last part of it to a group of high schoolers weaponized Carl Jung by using ghosts to punch gas station attendants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good one for those people that only know the true ending of Persona Four. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Here's one of mine. Four people hunt a man. Who likes to fold paper? Oh, okay. Uh, I think this might be about the origami killer. <laughs> heavy rain. You would be right about that. Yes, this is heavy rain. Four people. I, I struggled with this one because, yeah, is it four people really? We don't need to spoil the ending of mm. that game, but... I thought I'd go with the, you know, the standard premise of the game. So four people hunting man who likes old paper. Yes. I would say at least three and a half people three and a half are pe hunting three that. Three and a half people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one from the community from at Pachuki Pachuki. That is Arno, a, a good friend of mine, writes, You only die twice a day, but the party is pretty wild. You only, only die, die twice a day. But the party is pretty wild. Oh, um, that must be Deathloop. Because of the party. Yes, that is correct. Excellent. 100 points. <laughs> that is Deathloop. I would have guessed that without, without actually having played Deathloop, but I know that there's a big party going on and that you constantly die, basically. 
I, that's the only thing that gave me pause because at first you only die twice. I was thinking Sekiro shadows die twice, but oh. there's no party in that game. No, no, hardly <laughs> anyone parties in any from software game. I think no, not a lot of festivity. <laughs> you want to go with another well, one? Yes. All right. So an elite search and rescue team find a haunted house and proceed to do a lot of searching, but very little rescuing. Oh, could you read that again slowly? Absolutely. An elite search and rescue team find a haunted house and proceed to do a lot of searching, but very little rescuing. Oh, man. I fear. We, I mean, hmm? we may have talked about it earlier in this episode. We may have talked about it earlier. Yeah, I have a suspicion. The thing is that I have, I must admit, not played the very early Resident Evil games. You nailed it. Yeah, but this first was, Resident Evil. Yeah, this was the, the haunted house, uh, and the elite team gave it away because that that got me thinking. Even though I haven't played it myself, um, I I remember that it was like professional military people and so on. I know that Chris Redfield is like a trained person and so on. Yeah, yeah, yep. A lot of a uh, lot of looking around, but not a whole lot of saving people in that game. So, <laughs> how about? This is not really a summary. This is like an alternative title. Okay. Walkie Talkie, the game. <laughs> oh, um, oh shoot! I know, I know what it is, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm blanking on the. T is it uh, Firewatch? Yes. Yeah, Walkie Talkie, the game. <laughs> I was gonna say Overwatch at one point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was like, it's, I know it's something. Watch. Kind of similar. Yeah. Firewatch, Walkie Talkie, the game. Da -dum, That's da -dum, a good one. Da -dum, da -dum. <laughs> Here's Svea B who wrote in, and these are I always read out the Twitter handles of people because I don't want to necessarily mention their their full names. So Svea B uh, wrote in and said, "Spaceship Captain." postpones the saving of all biological life in the universe in favor of having sex with as many alien species as possible. Well, this is, I, I confess that I, I saw these tweets. I don't know the answers to any of them, and some of them actually perplex me, but this one I got in one. This must be Mass Effect. It must be Mass Effect, and I think it would be very yeah. much correct. I asked, some of the, for some of these people who wrote in, I reached out and asked for an answer. This was not one of them, because, yes, this is obviously... Mass Effect. Where else can you have sex with a blue alien? <laughs> so, here it is. Oh no! There was an explosion at the intellectual property factory, and you got your cartoon characters in my anime. Oh my god. Oh my god. That's completely overwhelming now. Can you read that again, slowly? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! There was an explosion at the intellectual property factory, and you got your cartoon characters in my anime. Uh, could it be that this is actually a series that you love very much? You're on the right track. <laughs> could it be that this is a series of which you have a tattoo? <laughs> You're getting warmer. <laughs> could it be that this is a series that has the title of an organ in its, in the name of an organ in its title? <laughs> ah, I think you're piping hot. <laughs> then that would be uh, Kingdom Hearts. Yes, not Kingdom Colon. As <laughs> not Kingdom Colon, as many would suspect. Maybe it's released in, yeah. Jap in Japan as Kingdom Colon. <laughs> we got the localized name. <laughs> yes, well, you knew it had to be coming, and I thought, what was the best way to 
throw you off the trail, but it didn't work too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're blazing through these. Uh, here's a, I've got only two more. Here's, here's one that I, that I still have, and that I honestly had to chuckle about myself a little bit. <clears throat> so I'm not sure whether you'll... I shouldn't ramp up the expectations. Yeah, let's see. So this is also a title. Gooey Bananas... <laughs> that's not it, it go it's on it's got a subtitle <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's called uh. gooey bananas a journey through time <laughs> <laughs> gooey banana oh, gooey bananas a journey through time oh man <laughs> This is this I think is is one of the few ones where I'm not sure whether you actually know it, but where I think it's pretty likely that you know it. Okay, I think a journey through time. I'm I'm obviously I'm stuck on that, but I think clearly the answer lies somewhere within gooey bananas. <laughs> um, well, you can also ask me questions about it, and then yeah, yeah. Okay, is this is this part of a very well known Nintendo series? No. No, okay. That that gets rid of two of my uh, <laughs> guesses, which was Zelda and Donkey Kong for the bananas. Yes, yes. No, but, neither of them is true. Um, is it a point-and-click adventure game? No. No, okay. Uh, that gets rid of Monkey Island. Yes, which could have very much been the case as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Gooey Bananas, A Journey Through Time. Oh wow! I I I'm drawing a blank on this one. This is this has got me. It's it is. A, here's a tip. It is a Japanese game. Hmm. A Japanese game. Uh, is it? Is it? Is it one of the Super Monkey Ball games? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not. Here's another tip. Yeah. It is a visual novel. Oh. Oh, now I'm going to feel really silly when I don't know it. You're going to have to tell me because I'm not going to be able to get okay. it. Okay, this is Steins Gate. Steins Gate. Do you know Steins Gate? I, I do, but only not not very well. I'm not sure where the gooey bananas come uh, into it. Okay, so so <laughs> Steins Gate, which is one of my favorite visual novels, um, I've played it on the PlayStation Vita back then. It was just such a treat. And it's part of the story that a group of teenagers, they just basically discover a way... Um, to travel through time by using a mm. microwave. However, ah. they need to test things first. So what they do, and this is very iconic about this game, they put bananas in the microwave and send them through time and back, and then the bananas turn into like gooey bananas. And it's, it's a bit a bit of a niche <laughs> reference maybe, but the bananas have like, if anyone, everyone who's played this game immediately probably thinks of, you know, the, these gooey green bananas they are very prominent in the in the first half of this game before they figure out how it actually works. I'll have to engage more with Stein. I know all I know I, I know of Steins Gate as being um, one of the more complicated stories that are out there. Yes, from what I understand. Yeah, it is. It is. So maybe I'll uh, I'll dive into it maybe in the summer when I have a lot of free time. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> a, it's a perfect way to read it like that. I think I I read it as a visual novel, obviously, but. Uh, while I was a bit ill and I spent quite a lot of time just like flicking through the dialogue and enjoying myself. There are a couple of choices that you can make to influence the outcome. But most of all, it's just really uh, funny, partially also very 
offensive, but then turns that offensiveness around into being endearing. So yeah, I, I really love uh, Steins Gate. Oh, great. Now here's Felix Felixson, who took to Twitter and said the following. You apply for an apprenticeship in a lovely medieval port town before traveling to a former prison to slay winged reptiles with the power of some god's eye. The power of some god's eye. This was, honestly, this was the hardest one for me. Yeah. You, you apply for... I'm sorry, could you read it one more time? You apply for an apprenticeship in a lovely medieval port town before traveling to a former prison to slay winged reptiles with the power of some god's eye. Uh, my best guess is that this is a unknown part of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. <laughs> but I have no idea. I've been thinking pretty hard about it and eventually I had to ask the answer because the problem is that this is a this is a video game that I have actually played but never really and never really with great interest. And this game is called Gothic 2. Oh. So there's the, the Gothic series, like, you know, action role-playing game series. I think it's from by Piranha Bytes. Um, mm. I think it's been, like, the, the Gothic games have been very popular in Germany. I don't know whether they have oh. made... I think I think they're also, they exist in the U.S. definitely as well, but I don't, I'm not sure whether they are as popular as they are here. No, I don't think so. I don't know that I've... The name is familiar, but I don't know if I'm thinking of the right thing is how murky I am on this. Well, it's also a bit older. I think Gothic 2, I don't know when Gothic 2 was, but I think it was like, let's say, early to mid-2000. And uh, yeah, so like 2000, between 2001 and 2008, I want to say. That must have been the time for Gothic. Okay. There was a third title afterwards, but it was not as successful. And ever since then, the series has been on hiatus. I see. I'll have to look into it. Do you have another one? I do. I have. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I have a very special dead guy starts a fire, parenthetically, or maybe doesn't. A very special dead guy starts a fire, or maybe doesn't start a fire. A very special dead guy very special dead guy who could that guy be starts a fire or maybe doesn't i can give you a hint uh, the the very special dead guy is just the player it's just the player just the player a very special dead guy as in well maybe not the person <laughs> scary. playing it, but <laughs> <laughs> i'll give you okay maybe i'll give you a uh an, another hint. So, a very big title in this series just recently got a lot of attention for an online uh, beta or kind of like demo that they gave out. Are you talking about for an online beta? You're not. Oh my god! Very recently, an on a recent online beta. So this is not like I know that there was a lot of coverage of Elden Ring recently, but oh, yep. Ding, ding, ding. Are we talking about Elden Ring? Nope. We're not talking about, we're talking about From Software. We're talking about uh, Dark Souls, I presume. 
Yes. Yeah. The first Dark yeah, Souls. Yeah, the first Dark Souls. Yeah. Okay. I've never played the first Dark Souls, I must admit. Okay. I was I was wondering I I had I had I was diving back into my memory thinking like, "Oh, I thought he uh, I know you played Bloodborne and I wasn't sure if you had gone back, but yeah, I figured so the reason I say that is because the player character's name is the Chosen Undead. Ah. So, very special dead guy. Ah, okay. <laughs> no, but that's a really good one. I, w- I think I would have got it if I would have actually played it. But I, ha- I have a question. You, because you're right, I have played Bloodborne, including its DLC, and I've platinumed it, and I got all the trophies, and I really love that game. And that's why I can confidently say that I have a profound affection for From Software. Um, yeah. I know of Dark Souls, and I know of Demon Souls, but... I never played them. Would you say it makes... Oh, Sekiro as well. I've never played Sekiro. Would you say it mm. still makes sense to jump into these games or should I just say, I- I'm just going to wait for Elden Ring, you know? Now, here's one. Here's another one from Svea B. She says, Grumpy old white man postpones saving his protege in favor of completing a card deck. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it's, it can't be, it, it can't be a Yu-Gi-Oh game because he's Egyptian. So that doesn't work. <laughs> a grumpy old white man. Is this one of the Witcher games? Yes. <laughs> okay. Got the card, the card deck. It's, uh, there's very few games that <laughs> have exciting card games in them. Yeah. And the Witcher is definitely one of them. What was the, what was the name of that card game again? Oh, it even has a standalone. I love that game. Is it um, Gwent? Gent? Gwent. 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 Yes, Gwent. Oh man, I played. I, I actually played the game exactly like this. My my goal immediately became to become the master of Gwent. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny when um, a game has a subsystem like that that you immediately make your priority? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like you know Final Fantasy X, where it's, where you can play a Blitzball. Blitzball. And I'm like, yeah. uh, I'm like, okay, so the world is going to end, but I'm going to become the Blitzball master before that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. So here's one from me. And my last one, actually, on the list. How communist are you? <laughs> Let's find out. <laughs> How communist are you? Let's find out. Yes. Is this, is this a very dreary game? <laughs> Oh, kind of. It's kind of dreary, but also humor, humorous at the same time. Yeah, okay. Um, is this um, like a very action-heavy game? No, not at all. Not at all? Not at all. Okay. Yeah. Does this game take place in a fake country? Yes. Is this game Papers, Please? No. Yeah, okay. <laughs> very close, though. Yeah. Very close. But actually, that's true. That would just as well fit Papers, yeah. Please. <laughs> I just realized that. It could very well be Papers, Please. <laughs> I'm not sure then. That was my big guess. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess this, this would definitely, uh, if we were playing for points, this would definitely earn you a point because that's legitimately what would perfectly fit this description. <laughs> In my mind, though, was actually uh, Disco Elysium. Oh, of course. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, they both, I think they both work from what you've told me of Disco Elysium, right? Yeah, yeah. Disco Elysium is also much about political ideologies, and essentially it comes down to the question how far you're willing to lean into communism, basically. <laughs> I guess Papers, Please is maybe 
not knowing how Disco Elysium ends, Papers, Please is maybe the the very sad outcome of that <laughs> yes. question. Yes. Uh, Shall we read one one last one from the community? And then you've got another one as well. I have a final as well. Yep. Okay, so here's here's from Old Bomb. Old Bomb writes on Twitter, Spaceship captain stranded on alien planet enslaves a native species, sacrifices hundreds of them, robs the planet of ancient technology, and leaves. <laughs> well, this must be Pikmin. <laughs> yes. That's true. That is Pikmin. Oh, sacrifices hundreds of them. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We, is it true? We got all of the community submissions right. All right. My last one. Um, this is just a simple title change. Worst anniversary trip ever. Worst anniversary trip ever. Oh, who's going on an anniversary trip? Is it, are there characters in the game on an anniversary trip? One of them, th he thinks he is. One of them thinks he's on an anniversary trip. Who thinks, this is not Japanese. Uh, it is. It is Japanese. It is Japanese, although it is um, very heavily American. Ah, are we talking about, is it about a town? Yes. Is it about, is it a horror game? It sure is. And that is Silent Hill. Silent Hill 2. Silent Hill, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> worst anniversary trip ever. <laughs> I always forget that there was, before Silent Hill 2, that there was another game that was called Silent Hill. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think uh, if I were to do the first Silent Hill, it would be, um, I don't trust this daycare anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> but I wouldn't have guessed it either way. <laughs> so yes, uh, those were our title blunders, dear listeners out there. If you have any more title blunders, then please let us know. You can hit us up on social media. You can find us, you know, on Reddit, Twitter, on Instagram, or by email to podcast at studyingpixels.com. And in the meantime, we can go forward and do some side questing. Let's do it. As you know, in our side quests... We venture through the internet and search for interesting stories. And of course, we bring our own video game impressions to the table as well. Such actually is the first entry in our list of side quests. Number one. Yes, I was lucky enough to pick up yesterday a copy of Shin Megami Tensei V from uh, our friends over at Atlas. Um, it is... Uh, a new entry in the long-running Shin Megami Tensei series, um, which a lot of people know, I think, as the uh, scary older brother of the Persona series. Yeah, I always thought of Shin Megami Tensei as this is for people who think Persona is not nerdy enough. Yes, I think that is a really good way of putting it. And um, I know I won't get into too much of this right now just because I've just sort of uh, delved into the game, but I do know that there's a lot of discourse online about um, Shin Megami Tensei fans being upset that um, all of the reviews are kind of comparing it to the Persona series in a sense that, you know, they feel, yes, of course there's connective tissue there, but they're very different series, and that, that's very true. Um, even in the first few hours of playing Shin Megami Tensei Five, um, it feels like a game from a different era, and I mean that in a really positive way. 
because I'm also a big fan of the third of the third, the third Shin Megami Tensei game um, that recently had a uh, re-release on the PS4, and they just feel like they come from a time in video games where the developers had a story they wanted to tell and ideas they wanted to test, and they didn't care if anyone liked it. Um, it's very the series is very esoteric. It's very concerned with um, religion and religiosity and how we perceive the connection between gods and what we would call demons. And Shin Megami Tensei Five is no different, at least from how I've started it. Um, I can't tell you what it's about because I've just scratched the surface on it. Um, but I can tell you that um, I've been playing it handheld mode on the Switch. Um, it is both gorgeous and really, really fun to play. Um, it's a, a turn-based RPG, um, and I think it's one of those deceptively complex turn-based RPGs where um, the system seems very simple at first, but I can see how complicated it can get. Um, and it just, as someone who loves the Persona series, um, and also the Shin Megami Tensei series, this feels even in the few hours that I've played, a return to form and a breath of fresh air for it. And uh, I'm just so excited that it happened and on the Switch of all places. <laughs> yeah, is this a Switch exclusive? As far as I know, um, I think that, uh, I'm not sure if there's plans to port it in the future, but it was a big, it was a big deal. Um, I think a couple of years ago now, it was uh, introduced at a Nintendo Direct. Um, and yeah, I remember that. that. Yeah. I think it was right around the time, it must have been, um, maybe a year after Joker was introduced as a Smash character yeah. from Persona 5. So it seems like there was some some deal was made between Nintendo and Atlas. And uh, I have no, you know, we, we mentioned a few episodes ago when we were talking about a recent Nintendo Direct, how we were kind of disappointed that, although we're happy Bayonetta 3 is being released, we're a little disappointed it's a Switch exclusive because of the hardware. Shin Megami Tensei 5 is, Atlas's style is cartoony enough and kind of, you know, anime enough that it really works well within the limits of the Switch from what I'm seeing. So this is a really hardcore role-playing a, a turn-based RPG, basically, that yeah. is about, as far as I understand it, about rather high-level concepts uh, rather than about, you know, personal stories. It seems that way so far. They, um, it introduces uh, what I assume will be the main characters. Um, you have about, you have your, you know, the player character who you get to name, just like with any other Atlas game. Um, and then you're introduced to about five or so um, ancillary characters that seem like they're going to be coming back, although I haven't seen them again yet. Um, but it uh, it definitely seems like it's more it's more concerned with this um, high concept, long running battle between gods and demons. Yeah. Um, and it's it's got me. It. I mean, I think. Uh, something that really struck me about it is that um, it gives you kind of the the setup for maybe 20 minutes and then you're in it immediately. Like, there's no fluff um, into the from the early stages of the game into the tutorial into the actual playing of the game. 
So um, very fast paced and yeah, seems to be really pushing you to get into this whole what's going on with these gods and demons. <laughs> is, do you think this is a game that is worth jumping into for people who haven't played the former Shin Megami Tensei games? From what I can tell, yeah. Um, because they're they're connected through, you know, thematics and um and like character designs and things like this. But f for the most part, I mean, they are largely their own stories. So um I think honestly, uh I've I've spent most of my time just uh running around and getting into random battles and stuff because I love the combat system so much. So honestly, even if you're just looking for a fun RPG on the Switch, I think this is probably the best one that's out there right now. Oh, amazing. That's Those are really positive impressions. I actually was a little yeah. bit worried about Shin Megami Tensei because I always felt like it was a little bit falling out of its time. But as you said, this can also be a really good thing because I know that while I personally have never dared tapping into it i know that there are people out there who really care about this and are really deeply involved in shin megami tensei more so than in persona maybe uh, or maybe it's maybe it's a good thing to say it's not always doesn't always make sense to compare them even though i think the demons are like similar they're like partially identical demon designs and the combat system works a little bit similar and it's all a bit stripped down in persona basically so shin megami tensei always seemed to me like the more mechanically complex and mechanically rich game I think that's the draw to it for a lot of people. Um, and I would say that my the the draw to it that I have is there's a and here's another uh episode that we could write on our sheet. Um there's a genre of game to me, or maybe just a maybe not a genre, but a grouping of games where um I don't know if you felt this stuff on, but when you when you pick it up and you start it, it almost feels like you shouldn't have found it. Like it's it's this secret thing that um your the the rules seem different from other video games and you feel like you're kind of invading a particular world and the opening to Shin Megami Tensei 5 very quickly sets this tone that something is very strange about this world and it's not clear whether you're going to find a place in it ah. it's just a very particular feeling um that i imagine Shin Megami Tensei fans love from all the games well i suppose that you're gonna spend a couple more dozens of hours at least with <laughs> shin megami tensei before you can give some kind of conclusive review impressions yes so you will be hearing from me again with it um but i did want to say that um i was very excited to pick it up and um so far it has done uh nothing but excite me Oh, wonderful. I'm, I'm glad to hear that i might actually tap into it as well when i have some time because i know that it is a time sink Yes, absolutely. Number two. Number two. So, speaking of uh, <laughs> things that we wish we had from Sony, <laughs> uh, the PlayStation <laughs> 5. So, um, Stefan, you drew my attention to this Bloomberg article um, by Takashi Mochizuki called, uh, or titled, It's Going to Get Even Harder to Buy a PlayStation 5. Yeah, that's what we all wanted to hear. I know. It's just too damn easy these last <laughs> few months. <laughs> uh, it really is. This is the the most elusive <laughs> game system I think that's come out yeah. with such such high demand and such little supply. Um, and this article kind of goes into. I mean, it, it kind of confirms, I think, what a lot of people were thinking was going on. So, um, in this article, we look into. 
that Sony was looking to have um, about 16 million units sold of the PS5 by March. Um, but they've had to cut that down quite a bit um, to, I think their goal now is 14.8, although it seems like they're struggling with that as well. And the big reason behind this is because they're just, there's not the parts. The The pandemic has taken a huge toll on computing equipment and um, and like uh, chips and, and other things that run these high-powered systems. And there's just, there's no... There's no supply for it. We always have to keep in mind when we talk about shortages of this kind, it's not only about video game systems, it's about cars, it's about cleaning robots, it's about smartphones, computers, radios, all of these things that require some some kind of computer technology that are all competing for the first few batches of you know deliveries that are coming mostly from China. Yeah, and... They at at one point Mochizuki says um, components in short supply include unremarkable but essential gear like power management chips. Chip makers from Toshiba Corp, which provides such power chips to Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Manufacturing Co., have warned that the fabrication situation is unlikely to normalize even during 2022. Wow! So, like you say, it's not just video game systems. It's really a lot of our technology is just going to be slowing down because we just don't have the the resources right now to uh, keep up with the production that we had three four years ago it feels like a wild separation it's coined almost like the the ps5 especially but also the xbox Mm. series x like the new console generation that never really happened because yeah. still the vast majority of people that do want to participate in this new console generation haven't got one. We're amongst the lucky ones that do have one. And I would say maybe just maybe as a word of comfort for all of you out there. Obviously, if you can get your hands on a PS5, then that's really great. And I'm really enjoying the experience with my PS5. However, I would say that if I had to say, okay, I'm going to go with a PS4 Pro for the time oh, being yeah. because I know that mm, it might last. Now I hear I'm studying pixels, man, this might last into 2022. Who knows? Maybe this Christmas I won't still be able to get a PS5. Then I think you are on a pretty solid track there because there are some exclusives for the PS5 that are cool, but it's nothing too essential yet that you would miss out on. No, and I would say that um, a lot of the a lot of the games that are being released on the PS5 have a PS4 counterpart. Yes. And, you know, I would say, I think the one game that I've played on PS5 that had a PS4 counterpart was the Miles Morales Spider-Man game. And I will say that um, it, there was, uh, because of the PS5, there was almost no loading at all. But on the PS4 Pro, I don't think you're going to be suffering all that much. So if you can find, um, and of course, this goes to, I should I should mention, I think this also goes back to PS4s as well, that there's kind of been a very limited production on those. But if you go to a, a game sh- a local game, game store um, and find a used one that's in pretty good condition, you're going to be set for a while. Um, yeah. There's a handful of PS5 exclusives right now that are really great. We've talked about Returnal, Ratchet & Clank. But the good news is... Um, the library isn't going to be so overwhelming that you won't feel like you can catch up <laughs> when you get a PS5. I think so too. And I know it's painful because 
I'm also just this kind of person who just wants the new thing because I'm a PlayStation fanboy. I'm a Sony pony. Yeah. And obviously, <laughs> I always get the new consoles. And this this time around is the first time that it happened to me as well that I wasn't able to get a console in the launch window. It took me a couple of months. But I, I just hope that you can feel a little bit comforted out there if you don't have one right now. And if you won't be able to get one for Christmas, then uh, I know it's painful, but hang in there. And be patient and rest assured that you can play almost everything that comes out on PS5 in a very, in a comparable quality. Obviously, you don't have the super fast loading times and stuff, stuff like that. But in a comparable quality, you can play most of these games already on, your, on the systems that you have. Absolutely. Number three. Making players care. The ambivalent culture politics of care and video games. By Bonnie Ruberg and Rainforest Scully Blaker. This is actually an academic article published in the International Journal of Cultural Studies. So a tiny disclaimer, as we go through this academic article, we will have to cut some stuff out because this is long. This is not a brief Bloomberg article or Kotaku article or something of the sort. This is really a long academic uh, article. So uh, please be aware that we're leaving some stuff out in our discussion and that it's totally worth it to give it a go and read this article. Now, the subject of this article is care, and they approach the idea of care through the lens of cultural studies and intersexual, excuse me, intersectional feminism. Now, what is care? Very briefly, quote, Care evokes an action to perform in ways that support others. An affect to feel empathy or compassion. A mode of engagement to care about a person or situation. A politic to insist on the importance of caring. And even a tool for social change, whether for subverting hegemonic norms or justifying discrimination. End quote. So these are several dimensions of care. And video games, they argue, are often praised for their value to make players care, to make people care. However, they say, this is a problematic assumption. Care might seem entirely positive at first. Nobody would say you shouldn't care, right? Caring about <laughs> things, caring about people is a good thing. But there are complications, say Ruberg and Scully Blaker. Now, before we get into some examples, how central is care to video games? That's the first question that they answer. So there are games that focus specifically on care. That's quite obvious. Quote, Care appears most prominently in games in which players take care of someone or something over time, such as an animal, a child, plants, or a town, end quote. So, you all know the Tamagotchi, you know, <laughs> virtual pet simulators, you know, Nintendogs. Often these are casual games in which you care for a tiny, beloved creature, games that are often associated with femininity in contrast to more male-oriented core games. But this is not all of it. These are There's some games that focus specifically on care, but it is also prominent in a much wider array of games. 
quote, video games about cultivating ever-expanding farms or cities, end quote. So this would be Stardew Valley, City Skylines, they mention The Sims. But I also thought, you know, Age of Empires, a new game just came out recently. Civilization, which I very much love. You yeah. care about your people and about your civilization. And you may want to, you know, you might, you might fight wars in order to fend off aggressors. And you might try to prevent the effects of climate change, hopefully, at least in the game, <laughs> in order to maintain a healthy land for them to live on. <clears throat> so they go on and say, quote, even in more hardcore game genres, like action-adventure games and MMORPGs, players perform care work for their characters, whether by leveling them up or collecting resources to feed and heal them, end quote. So this is really pretty much any kind of role-playing game, right? Where you yeah. you might eat, you might drink, uh, you might cut a Gerald from The Witcher, you might cut his hair and trim his beard occasionally. Um, you might care for your horse that you have, Roach, in, in The Witcher games. So all kinds of forms of care are deeply implemented in video games. And they don't even mention, you know, such games that typically have a wider party. We mentioned Mass Effect earlier, where you have a party of characters about which you care. So um, there's a lot of, that, that the phenomenon of care is quite deeply inscribed into many video games. And I think, I think too, um, and not to, not to jump too far ahead, but the other, you brought up Mass Effect and that makes me think of, um, it extends beyond what we might think of taking care of something where we would, you know, you mentioned Roach in The Witcher 3, where you, you have this affinity for this horse that you're, you're taking care of in the game, you're, you know, feeding them and everything. I think it also extends to um, when you have a party of people, you take care to learn their likes and dislikes and what is important to them and what you might have to do to make sure that their story is fulfilled by the end of the game. Of course, yeah. You can care so deeply about party members in a role-playing game that you cry when they pass away. And this has happened to me more than once. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So they look now at three specific types of games and analyze them in a little bit more detail. Um, these are tend and befriend games, uh, which would be number one. Number two are so-called empathy games. And number three, basically they look at the limitations of care and they look at the walking dead. Uh, and we could go through these briefly and maybe maybe we can discuss them whenever we are at the, at the individual point. So tend and befriend would be the first category they look at. And they uh, specifically check out a game called Hashtag Self-Care. Uh, this is a game I actually have first encountered it because I'm working on the construction of madness and mental illness in video games. And self-care is a game that's decisively about, you know, trying to make you, to soothe you, to make you feel relaxed. Um, they describe it as, quote, self-care is about staying in bed all day and engaging in calming activities, cuddling with a cat, lighting a candle, consulting tarot cards, etc. End quote. So in self-care, there are no winning conditions, there's no pressure, there's no failed state. You don't get like any notifications from self-care. It's just a person where you, you only see their arms sticking out of a blanket and they're just <laughs> right. laying there. Right? And it's really yes. just a game to really try and calm you down. And this obviously is a, it's very obviously a form of care. Um, it is even an important thing to experience for people 
that are otherwise maybe surrounded by uh, you know, oppressive social dynamics, it might be a very valuable resource, resource to have such games of care and self-care. However, the, uh, they argue always like, they always have some points of criticism about these games. Self-care might be soothing, but it also taps into the expansive market of self-care and mindfulness. They say, quote, self-care as both a set of rhetorics and a growing industry, represents a neoliberalization of affect, a pushing of the responsibility of one's well-being away from the state and onto the individual. End quote. So the idea, the problem is, in other words, that such you know ideas of self-care and mindfulness, they have the underlying ideology that care is a thing that you have to give yourself. You have mm. to care about yourself. It's not so much about the state and it's not about a community that cares about each other, but it's about self-care. And this is what they mean when they say it's like a neoliberalization because it's all about you have to care for yourself because no one else will do it for you, basically. Chilling thought, but yes, also... A chilling reality, I think, as well. It is a chilling reality. And I must say, I, I personally am not a big fan of the entire mindfulness and, and self-care, uh, at least not the, the industries that surrounds it. I do such things like, you know, I have an Apple Watch on my wrist yeah. and it, it alerts me once breathing. a week. Yeah, do the breathing, breathing yep. like every day, like one minute of breathing. And it really is a good thing. I don't want to advertise it, but it's a good thing for me when I'm, sometimes I'm in the flow of working. And you know how you sometimes just hit a barrier, you just get stuck cognitively. And so it's good when my Apple Watch says like, hey, it looks like your pulse is a bit high. Why don't you just breathe for a minute? And they even have this new feature called mindfulness, where once a week, always on Sunday, I get an alert that says, don't you want to take a minute and just, you know, think about something like the last time you've been kind to someone and then just sit there and just think about this for one minute. And I like these things. I don't have a problem with that in general. But of course, we must never forget that care is not something that's only about the individual. There are communities that must care about one another. And the state also has an obligation of care towards its citizens, not only in a pandemic. Then there are, of course, empathy games. Empathy games. The idea is to make people care about the situation of others, usually about marginalized groups by playing an empathy game. Um, commonly, these empathy games, they use uh, metaphorical abstractions um, so that you can basically uh, slip into the shoes of, of uh, a person that you're not, you would not otherwise necessarily identify with because you're not personally affected. They use the example of For the Records. This is actually an interactive documentary. It's not very well known. I wasn't even aware of it, and I study mental illness and video games. So, <laughs> uh, so these are short games that encourage people to, to care about people with mental illness. For example, quote, the game Fluctuation, for example, is a platformer in which moving too high in the play space represents mania and moving slowly represents depression, end mm. quote. It's a fairly common metaphor. I've seen this in other games as well. Elude is one of them where you're also 
you know, in manic phases, you go all the way up into the sky and then the platforms, which are like flower petals on which you jump, they disappear slowly and then you sink way deep into the ground. Oh, wow. That's, that's really powerful. I think, see, what I, what I love about that is that I think games have a power to be um, very, very simple um, and communicate things in a way that's so visceral to people that mm. if you, um, obviously you're not going to have a, an entire education on manic depression when you play a game like that, but you can certainly apply more empathy to someone who may have that condition if you play a game like that and think, oh, is it like this? Because I think it taps into it. I think so, yeah. And I actually am much more positive about these games than uh, Ruberg and, uh, sorry, let me look up the name, Ruberg and Scully Blaker are because I've also made such so many positive experiences with it. That game Elude I was just referencing, when I played that for the first time, I actually showed it afterwards to a person who suffers from severe depression and asked them, like, is this how I can roughly imagine it to feel? And uh, she said, yeah, that's, you know, a pretty... When she played it herself, she thought, like, yeah, it really put me into that mindset that, I, that sometimes overcomes me. So I find that very helpful. They are a lot more critical about this. They quote Robert Yang, who says, quote, when you walk in someone else's shoes, you've stolen their shoes, end quote. <laughs> so they actually... <laughs> I, never, I, I never, I never, I never took that idiom that way. I assume that you would give the shoes back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think the there's a bit of an idea that's like an, a lingering idea in this in this article that um, of almost like um, cultural appropriation, a little bit like you know an identity appropriation, where if mm. you if you try to you know if you empathize with a person that's for example discriminated against uh, because of their skin color, then you sort of um, assume their role and that's kind of demeaning for the authentic experiences of being racially stigmatized or racialized hmm. and I do think there is a certain uh, aspect of truth in that I don't want to say that uh, that can't happen I do think that can definitely happen and it, it can happen you can use a game that's about you know depression or psychosis or something those are dom domains that I'm a little bit more uh, familiar with then these you can use almost like a bit of an adventure roller coaster that can be demeaning to people who actually have these conditions. But I would say that's not usually the case. The thing is that there are many of these games that are made by people who have these conditions or who are affected. Right. And for them, it's a form of, you know, self-expression as well. And I would, I would think not to, <laughs> not to take their shoes and run off with them, but I would also think that it's a way to reach out and try to have others ex understand their worldview in a way that maybe just explaining it to somebody. We, I, we've all been in a position like that where someone is trying to, um, someone is, is in a bad way and maybe they're opening up to you and, uh, you know, they, they say something and then maybe you say something back and they say, I don't think you understand or you just don't understand. And I think that that is a, a crippling feeling for a lot of people. So I, I agree. I think it's a way where people who are maybe in that position can make their condition understandable to others. Yeah, it is also admittedly hard to understand sometimes. Yes, very much. 
as much as I, I totally empathize with with any kind of person who is in a marginalized position, yet the thing is just, um, I am, for example, I'm socialized as a male person. I haven't made the experience of being a woman and walking home at night. And I haven't made the experience of being black or, you know, being gay or whatever, right? And right. I think, I think on the one hand, of course, you don't want to superficially adopt such a perspective and be like, oh, I've played the coming out simulator, which is actually a hmm. thing. It's a tiny browser game. It's quite, quite, quite interesting. Um, I've played that, and that's why I know exactly what it is to have a, to be in that situation. Uh, that is obviously ridiculous. <laughs> yes, that's that's the risk you run if you say I know exactly what it is. No, I think I think the power of these kinds of games is that you can gesture to it in a way that you hadn't been able to before. Yes, exactly. And you can try. You can try. It, it is it is in that sense really a matter of empathy. Empathy is not being that person, but trying to understand their perspective in their position. So I think um, Ruberg and Scully Blaker are a little bit too too skeptical about the power of empathy games, especially because there are studies. I've worked with the game Depression Quest um, for oh, quite yeah. a bit now for my, for my PhD as well. And uh, there are actually empirical studies that show that uh, the communication after playing Depression Quest on Steam, I think it's about like 40 or 50% of people who've played the game address uh, matters that go into the direction of like, I feel like I can understand people better who suffer from depression or even, and that's I think also very valuable, I suffer from depression myself and I played this game and I felt understood. Yeah. And it's something that I, uh, I relish reading in, in YouTube comments. Like I'll watch, you know, scenes from particular games or, or shows or movies or something like that. And I really enjoy reading comments that say, um, when I heard this, I felt like it was me or I, I it, it felt like finally somebody knew what I was feeling. That's a very powerful thing for a lot of people that I think don't otherwise have that outlet. Exactly, yeah. So if we move on to the limits of care, which is basically the limits of care beyond the in-game uh, context, we're talking about The Walking Dead, or they are talking about The Walking Dead, because we know that The Walking Dead by Telltale Games, it centrally features care quote the, i'm sorry the walk the walking dead colon the limits of care the limits of care yeah. why why care is evil yeah. <laughs> uh, well i don't want to mischaracterize this article because i find it really interesting but yeah. um so they say about the walking dead they say briefly quote from the very opening moments of the series the player is thrust into the role of tending to clementine and befriending other survivors to seek strength through numbers End quote. Yeah, this is about building up a party and trying to survive as best as you can in a zombie apocalypse. Caring about others is a central virtue promoted by this game. However, it comes with some problems. Um, they say, first of all, this big thing of dadification. Uh, we know the rise of the dad game, right? From The Walking Dead to The Last of Us, where it's all about, uh, you know, basically equating uh, the role, the father role with care. And uh, that can be a little bit problematic. I don't think it's essentially... <laughs> I'm sorry, the new god of war? <laughs> the new god of war. Yes, Kratos suddenly becomes a father that a cares. A caring father, yeah. I think, I think it's cool because I think that there is a lot to be said about the father role in our society. 
Um, so I think there is there's a good reason for why these dad games emerged, but it's obviously it shouldn't undermine other forms of care, obviously. And uh, though this is so, this is the setup for The Walking Dead. Now, Ruberg and Scully Blaker, they are primarily interested in what happened as Telltale, Telltale Studios then closed their doors because they had made The Walking Dead for a while. And then quite suddenly, and much to the detriment of employees, of staff members there, Telltale Studios suddenly shut down. Most of the people working there were let go at very short notice and many of them thrown into an existential struggle. Because where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Terrible situation for hundreds Such of people. Such a mess. Yeah. Such a mess. And uh, Ruberg and Scully Blaker, they say, quote, Unfortunately, many fans of the series responded to the layoffs with a striking lack of care, end quote. So they referenced the fan responses of people who evidently had played and loved The Walking Dead. Some of them went online to start a petition so that Clementine's story shall be finished. There was often an aggressive undertone or even a very much explicit aggressive tone on social media going so far as to demand that staff members should work for free in order to finish this game because players, some players, apparently assumed that the developers must care as much about these characters as staff members do, even though they're obviously in a completely different headspace when you just suddenly <laughs> you lost your job. Yeah. And there are many other factors that tie in here. Of course, gamers sometimes feeling like developers have an obligation towards them. We know that from the discussion of the Mass Effect ending. And we know that game development is also sometimes still portrayed as a profession that is driven mostly by passion rather than the need to actually earn a living. The central point, though, that they make is, quote, the fan response to the shutdown serves as a revealing, if discourage, uh, uh, discouraging, counterpoint to the preceding discussions of care in games, end quote. So Ruberg and Scully Blaker take their fan responses as an indicator that though these players had developed great sensations of care for characters in The Walking Dead, they did not extend that care beyond the limitations of the fiction. I do think that there is, there is something very interesting in that. Because if, you're, if you look at The Walking Dead or any other of the games that we've talked about as games that cultivate that sense of care in the player, you maybe, I, well, I would expect that that care would carry over outside of the game, right? We were just talking about the empathy that one may gather from playing a game like Depression Quest, where that certainly does carry uh, or stick with them after they've played the game. So it is odd to me that there seems to be some kind of threshold where there's so much, maybe you're, you're learning about care, but there's also so much care that you have for the story that when the story gets abruptly cut off, all of a sudden you forget the entire moral of the story. <laughs> <laughs> the point is completely lost here. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but well, the thing is, um, I think it's legitimate to say that the we we might be wrong to assume that just because someone plays games in which they basically train their their muscles of caring that necessarily means that that extends to other parts of life 
Um, yeah. I think that would be that would be an oversimplification anyway. I never had that assumption because the thing is that for better or worse, developers are mostly anonymous. They are like just a bunch of names that run across the screen uh, while you're not watching the credits, basically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, I think it's just, it's difficult. There, there are some people who are aggressive, some people who feel downright offended because they cared about the story and they're upset that it's not finished. Even It has been finished by now, by the way. Um, but the thing is, uh, yeah, there's there were also a lot of words of compassion and there was a lot of outrage that went throughout video game culture discourse at that time in the way that Telltale Games had handled these things. And I don't think we can boil it down to just looking at the, let's say, particularly loud voices of people that were evidently outraged by, the, by you know, them just wanting to continue the story of, of, of Clementine. So I'm not sure. I find their argument here... I must say, a bit weak because I think it is the, it is true. It is the case. But have was the underlying assumption really that if people play a game where they have, care about characters, that they care about anything else in life just as much automatically? I don't think. Not, not really. That's not really the case. I, I suppose if uh, The Walking Dead were a game about, um, let's say, a game studio that... Yeah. Um, <laughs> treated its employees very poorly and then all of a sudden closed its doors. If that were the narrative of The Walking Dead, maybe it would have carried over a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think I think you're right. It's well, I mean, exactly for the reasons that we were talking about with the um the games like Depression Quest or Elude, where that is something that you directly extend to somebody that you may know in real life, that has a, a very easy counterpart. But if you're just if you just find yourself caring a great deal about a story, it's hard to imagine that that care would be transferred to, I don't know, the homeless or people without jobs. Or you can't just take that and put it into a different bubble, I guess. Yeah, I, I think it also depends on the method of how you obtain that sensation of care. Because in The Walking Dead, you don't just like randomly care about the characters, but you do care about them because you spend time with them, you have conversations with them, you make important choices for their lives. And I bet that if you could rather equate this to the situation that if you encounter um, a homeless person and you might share a cigarette with them and then you might, you know, a week later you see them again and you might just have a conversation with them and you get to know them and they become an important part, an important conversational partner, then you care obviously in a much different way. It's yes. not that kind of, it's hard to care in a structural and abstract way. And it's also, it can also be overwhelming. I mean, if I, they're currently in Germany every day, roughly 200 people, a bit between 200 and 300 people dying of the coronavirus. If I cared about each of them in the way that I broke down when I cried at the ending of The Walking Dead, yeah, that would, would be, be impossible. A you couldn't live your life. Yes. Yeah. It, it, I that's I think that's an apt comparison because I remember um when the pandemic started and the numbers in America, I mean they're still horrendous, but when they were really climbing, um I I had I had an occasion to speak with um speak with a therapist not in the context of my going to therapy, but a, a therapist that I know. Mm. And she she was describing to me that um it's it's like a low level of of grief 
that you're going through, where you understand that this terrible thing is happening, but you can't process it so well. So you just feel as if you're in a constant state of post-funerary um, ritual. And I think to your point, yeah, you can you can very easily expend a lot of care for the story of Clementine as you're experiencing it. But if you were to experience that level of emotion for every awful thing that's happening, you couldn't do anything. You would be you would be bedridden your entire life. Yeah, yeah. I think I have a little bit more of a closer tie to the corona pandemic deaths and especially also the staff members of the hospital because I've worked as a nurse myself. And so whenever I think of, whenever I read on the news that, you know, hospitals are overwhelmed, intensive care units are nearly uh, collapsing. That is the case at the moment in Germany again, because we're just yeah. hitting, the, the fourth wave is hitting Germany really hard at the moment. And the thing is, then I immediately think back to myself and to my colleagues from the emergency room and the intensive care units that I have worked on a couple of years ago. And I think it was already bad back then. How must it be now? So there I have a clear tie. But I think the form of care that we have to extend to come back to the, to the topic, to such things like video game developers, that's a more abstract form of care. It's a more rational, more cognitive form or structural form of care rather than this personal involvement. And that's why it doesn't surprise me that Walking Dead doesn't flex your doesn't make you flex your muscles on this cognitive or structural form of care. I think that's very well put. Well, to conclude, just briefly, um, they say, I, I mean, I've been criticizing this article a bit now. Both of us have been tearing it apart in, in certain aspects. But the very important note that they end on is that just because care comes with its complications, and legitimately, it does. We've seen this on some of the examples that care is not solely a positive thing, not exclusively a positive thing. It does not mean that care is not something worth striving for. They say, quote, identifying these complexities does not mean that we should dismiss care. Much to the contrary, the ambivalence of care, the way it is both troubled and creates trouble, is precisely one of its values as a meaningful framework for thinking about the radical potential and cultural value of video games. And I put in a tiny ellipsis here and say, as a conclusive remark, like the work of care, the work of critique is endlessly necessary and necessarily endless. <laughs> it is a commitment to caring about the object of critique as it stands today and imagining alternative ways of being for its future. Wow. So we critique video games because we care about them. That's what we yes, do. Yes, of course. <laughs> yes, and I think uh, it is, not to not to get too self-aggrandizing, but I do think that it is a, a way of um, cultivating care in and of itself, where if you continually care about the the medium and you... Uh, you just keep at it, then I think you're going to find far more nuanced and interesting looks at video games, what they can do, what they can teach, and how they can affect your life once you put the controller down, too. Ah, those are wonderful words to conclude this episode. So, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> let's do that. Thank you very much, dear listeners out there, for listening to this show. If you want to support us, care a little bit about your favorite game studies and video game culture podcast, then you can get Studying Pixels Plus. 
You can go to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out more. You can obviously share this episode with your friends, share it on social media. We would much appreciate that. And you can always submit your thoughts and questions to podcast at studyingpixels.com because I would really love to one day do something like a mailbag episode where, you know, yeah. every two months or something, we just unpack listener questions. So if you have any of them, you can email them to podcast at studyingpixels.com. I would say when you write an email with a question that we should consider for a mailbag episode, just write your question directly into the subject line. No other text is necessary. So the effort for you, dear listeners, should be relatively low. And for us, then we can just look into our email inbox and we can scroll through and we can copy out all of your questions, put them into a sheet, and then we can discuss them on our show. That would be quite wonderful. We're looking forward to hear from you. And then we'll talk again soon. Next week. Next week. Yes. Next week. Yes. Next week. We'll do that. Let's do that. Let's talk next week. Bye-bye. It's settled. <laughs> it's settled. <then. laughs> I'm putting it into my calendar. <laughs>